Hello everyone, this is JVL. Welcome to the next level. I'm here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. Before we get started, hit the like button, hit subscribe, give us five stars, all the things. And then when you're done with that, go over to thebulwark.com and sign up for all the amazing free stuff that we just give away. We just give it away like it's candy. You get Charlie Sykes's excellent morning newsletter, morning shots, you can get Mona Charon's podcast, Beg to Differ. We got so much good stuff. Come on over to thebulwark.com. Sarah, what an amazing performance that you are here. You just tested positive for COVID, what, 24 hours ago? You you are gutting it out, dare I say strapping it, by which I mean a football helmet, on to do this show. Well done. I, I am the bravest among us. Some might yeah. say you're the greatest hero of them all. They might say that. I don't know. This is interesting, though. I haven't seen you recently, so no little, no blaming Tim no blaming America first, no blaming Tim first for the COVID incursion of your body. No, but I will say the Tim version that I got, considerably worse mm. than the- Much more virulent. The, the, ver the version I've gotten from my kids here. I am virile. That makes sense. Well, the, the Tim COVID wanted you to pay attention to it. <laughs> That's, That's right. <laughs> so uh, anyway, on the next tier down in heroism, from if Sarah's up here, down here- President of these United States, Joe Biden, got himself over to Kiev to, by surprise, mark the anniversary of the war. And I'd say, A, it was sort of amazing to wake up and have this happen on Monday morning. It was pretty impressive seeing Dark Brandon walking around in his black trench coat and his aviators was pretty alpha, pretty boss, like air raid sirens going on. He don't care. You know, he's just there to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And he was all out of bubble gum. And uh, it was it was a pretty good moment, no? What about the, at the air sirens? What a gift by the Ruskies. Yeah, totally. I guess the chain of events here was that we actually gave Russia a heads up that Biden was going to be there, which is also the biggest pretty flex ever in yeah. the history of American foreign policy. It's like FYI, we're going. Go ahead, you know, take your best shot if you want to. Uh, see how that turns out for you, Ruskies. They did not do that, but instead they flew some, I guess, some planes over to, you know, flex their impotent muscles. And as a result, some air raid sirens are on. So you have Biden and Zelensky walking through Kiev with the sirens going off. Uh, like perfect staging uh, and just a complete gift from Putin. Thank you for that. And on the merits, a very cool moment. And you got into this a little bit in the triad today, which I read, JVL. And Ooh, plus one. It, it took a little bit for it to sink in for me. One reason is that just because of the nature of our horrible discourse, like we immediately go into the meta discourse on Twitter and the political tribalism, like you don't even have a chance to you know, take in the nightly news like it was the 1980s and just sort of appreciate what's happening before you have to get into everybody's opinion. So for that reason, it took a little bit longer for it to sink in. But I, I think the other reason is I've said this before about how people really particularly younger than me, like I, like my generation, we have some good foreign policy memories, but like if you're even like 35 and younger, there isn't really even like a single good foreign policy memory unless you count like Bush on the rubble, 
right? Which is not a good memory, yeah. right? You know, but I mean, like that at least is a patriotic moment. Like, like it's hard to come up with like pure good for, where like the U.S. is acting. It is in the side of righteousness. There is no moral confusion about it. The action is a good action. It's helping and uh, it's important. And this this moment had that. And I think that, you know, for maybe it might take some of us who aren't Cold War babies like a little bit of a moment to be like, wow, this is what it feels like. This is nice. So I almost 24 hours later, we were taping this for when I saw it. I have a more of appreciation than I did, you know, kind of in the moment while I was like trying to be on the ski slopes with my child and also navigating some Twitter battles with the baddies. Joe Biden turns out to be George H.W. Bush's second term. Who would have thunk it? Yeah, I would say, like, I was watching Biden walk. He was, like, a little stiff. A swagger? Uh, a stiff swagger? I don't know, yeah. But this is one where, like, his age sort of works in his favor in this regard. The Russians want to take a shot at him. He's like, I have no Fs to give. Like, I'm going to walk around here. <laughs> I am 80 years old and, like... Fine. I this is like if this is how I go out, this is how I go out. And I'm not gonna did, be ducking uh, any mortar fire over here. Okay. That's right. That's right. No, I was it was a nice proud moment. I will say we've now seen a bunch of world leaders have met with Zelensky, and so there was a part of me that was like, it's about time. I thought his speech was really good. I thought his making like very clear commitments, you know, while he was there. I wonder though, Tim brings up a good point about the 80s. Like, do we get to have iconic moments anymore? Do young people see this and think of it as an unalloyed good because, you know, the discourse overwhelms it and everyone's like, how good is this? I don't really know. It's not a unifying moment. In fact, you know, the lunatics come out to talk about all the reasons why this isn't good. I mean, the Republicans, just insane stuff coming out of the the Putin apologist camp around this because, you know, everything Joe Biden does is bad. But like, so do they know? You say the young people, Sarah, and I would, I'd pay cash money for you to do a focus group with 16 and under, it's like 13 to 16 year olds, and ask them if they even know that there is a war going on in a country called Ukraine. Sure. I guess I mean like 29 year olds. Oh, 29 is young. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, I guess 29 year olds probably know, but I don't know. I mean, those people all vote for Biden. They're pretty politically engaged. I think that this means something. Our 26-year-old producer is weighing in saying he felt patriotic. I, does it matter? I guess my question is, does it matter? I guess it matters, right? Like, But my point was more, this is an unalloyed good. And it was a, a, a historic moment. And it was a moment that, you know, 10, 15 years from now will be played on cable news. And so, like, you know, if, if there are mixed views on it because the kids are, like, spending too much time listening to Candace Owens' podcast and, like, you know, getting, like... <laughs> you know, tweets from the pro-Russia lefty camp. I, like, okay, that is what it is. And there's broad support among Gen Z for Joe Biden, overwhelming support for him and voting. Maybe that was a lot of anti-Trump stuff, uh, you know, less than a feel-good element of it. But I think that just, you know, judging this on the merits of the case, you know, it was that. We were able to have it. And, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing that's a little bit of a grower and the appreciation can build over time. Oh, damn. Well, just uh, on that, on the growing over time, the process stories have been fun in terms of like how they pulled it off. Amazing. Yeah, really fun. I was exhausted just reading that. Well, yeah, right? Like the things that they had to do to keep that under wraps where you just wake up and he's in Kiev. That's a wild thing. People won't appreciate how much goes into something like that. 
Yeah. And then the final decision was made on Friday. It really was a last minute thing. Okay, I want to move on then to the meta discussion. Mm. What we want to talk about is Ron DeSantis. And he rushed onto Fox and Friends for a hard-hitting interview to give his thoughts on Ukraine and the war. And I'm going to throw to Tim to let him take that. But I want to put in both of your minds while we, before we start this conversation that I feel like we're seeing another never-Trump cleavage, which is that the muscular foreign policy establishment within the Republican Party, they didn't want Trump to begin with. When they got Trump, they basically got on board because they took the John Bolton view of like, well, you know, we got to be in the room to try to make sure that bad things don't happen. And now, you know, you see one or two conservative types suddenly begrudgingly saying, yes, this was a good thing by Biden. And they're they're very concerned about what happens if Republicans get control because they think Republicans are going to pull the plug on Ukraine because that's what Republican voters want. So just have in the back of your mind while we talk about this, are we going to see another cleavage here where people who had been for two generations Republican and conservative types now realize that their home is actually in the Democratic Party? All right. I think we should play it just because it is remarkable when you hear it. Like you need that context. I think while he's over there, I think I and many Americans are thinking to ourselves, okay, he's very concerned about those borders halfway around the world. He's not done anything to secure our own border here at home. We've had millions and millions of people pour in, tens of thousands of Americans dead because of fentanyl. And then, of course, we just suffered a national humiliation of having China fly a spy balloon clear across the continental United States. So we have a lot of problems accumulating here in our own country that that he is neglecting. So, uh, you know, for me, th there's two things that really stick out from that clip of DeSantis. The first is just in the narrow scope to what we were talking about. The fact that he would go on Fox and Friends the morning that Biden is there and not even offer a mild statement of support for the U.S. or for our allies or for the people that are fighting, the people that are risking their lives in Ukraine, the fact that he would not even offer a mild criticism of the Russians and their invasion and their culpability for this incursion, their war crimes. I, I, he didn't do any of that. Like That is just so far outside of what we had come to expect from politicians in a pre-Trump era. And I think that what we continue to see from Democratic politicians today, this is a norm that is still held on the Democratic side. It is impossible to imagine four years from now, let's say Ron DeSantis is president and he's traveling to a war zone, Joe Biden going on to MSNBC, <laughs> onto Chris Hayes' show, to the very moment that Ron DeSantis is there to shit on DeSantis. Like, it's impossible to, like, imagine that. That is not what's happening. Sure, there'd be some lefty commentators that would trash him, et cetera. But, like, leaders of the party, that is a norm that's still held by the Democrats. The Republicans are just not doing it. And, and you can see that DeSantis, this is another example where he's just following Trump's footsteps and just totally trashing and shitting on Biden while he's over there. It's pretty gross. And I, and I do think it undermines, to what you were saying earlier, Sarah, the sense that like this was a unifying moment, because it was and it should have been. And, and you should be able to, for one day, say, hey, good on our president you know, for sticking a thumb in the eye of the Russians, for defending our allies, for standing up for the people that have suffered so much you know, at, because of this Russian aggression. And I have a couple differences with him on policy. We can get to that as the week goes on. Like That's not that hard. It's what every politician, what every leader would have done up until about two minutes ago. So that's one. The other interesting item of the DeSantis thing for me is it's his first real foreign policy 
comments in a modern time. And so it gives us a, a view of what he's going to be. And I think there's this question of, is he going to be more NatCon and go with the MAGA isolationist side? Or is he going to be more on the Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, you know, Mitch McConnell, oh, we're, you know, neocon, we're criticizing Biden for being weak. And Ron DeSantis, as we should be expected, gave his answer, which was, I am both. I have not yet decided. <laughs> like, within one man, I'm going to criticize Biden. And in one answer, I'm going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene and say we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine at all. We, I don't know. We should be worried about our border, blah, blah, blah. And then in another answer, I'm going to be Marco Rubio, and I'm going to say, oh, the only reason this happened is because Joe Biden is weak and because he withdrew from Afghanistan and because he didn't deter Russia strongly enough. So I thought that both of those were kind of my big takeaways from that interview. As a practical matter for somebody who is a Republican, can't they make both arguments simultaneously in perpetuity? Like, I, I don't think you have to pick one. That's a good question. I'm interested in Sarah's take. It's a good question about during the campaign. And you can't make both arguments in perpetuity into your presidency. Well, <laughs> right, you can't govern with both, but you can live in both because in both right and we've talked about this before and i think this is the essence of how republicans have internalized discussing foreign policy and trying to paper over the cleavage that now is like a deep deep wedge within the party is just to find biden bad right so biden bad is the thing they disagree about and i've been waiting for ron DeSantis to get this question because i have been dying to see because here's the thing we know that inside ron DeSantis is nikki haley Right. Ron DeSantis is somebody who thinks that Russians are bad. Like he came up as a normie Republican. I don't think that he is somebody who thinks that like we shouldn't be helping the Ukrainians, but he also knows where the base of the Republican Party is. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just think what? that's a little mean to Nikki Haley. And since you're the biggest Nikki Haley person of all of us on here, <laughs> like I, I do think Nikki Haley actually genuinely like cares about human rights abroad and stuff. Me too. And, and I, I don't think Ron DeSantis does. I mean, I guess maybe in the, yeah, that's maybe in the That's my point is that yeah. on the inside, Ron DeSantis knows what the true and right answer is. Like he knows what is right. And he also knows what the base wants. And those things are in conflict, yeah. which is why you're seeing him do the two-step. And I'm just saying like, if, if Ron DeSantis were to take truth serum, or if you got to Ron DeSantis 10 years ago and none of this intervening stuff had happened and he was seeing this right now, he would be talking about how, of course we have to support Ukraine and, and we have to be tougher. We have to be tough on Russia. Like right. he would talk like a Republican of your, and I would say, I'm not sure there's a bigger cleavage within the party other than maybe like where they stand on Trump than the foreign policy question. Right. And Ron DeSantis's great political strength thus far has been his ability to maintain strategic silence in the face of these very big questions to the point where he is the de facto challenger to the front runner for president of the United States. And we don't know where he stands on the number one foreign policy issue of the moment. And even after him going on TV and saying a couple of things, we still don't know how he would govern. But what we're seeing take shape is how he will handle this, which is to say both things and to pivot around Biden bad. And depending on which audience he's talking to, he will pick one of two lanes, either Biden's bad for not doing enough or Biden's bad because he is too engaged on this issue and we should be focused on issues here at home. Yeah, it looked like you were nodding when JVL was talking when, and you think that he can keep this up throughout a primary. I'm not so sure. It's a good question to work through. I, I think what I just saw of him is like, his early thinking about how he can do this both. Once they get into debates, like real things, assuming that those things happen in normal ways, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley would all, I think, probably say pretty similar things. Ron DeSantis, he is base first. And also he's 
like those other guys like can't betray to their credit. They would not do what Ron DeSantis just did. I think Nikki Haley would be much more unequivocal. I don't know. I mean, her the don't say gay law doesn't go far enough. That's not a core thing for her. The foreign policy stuff is. Maybe. I don't know. I'm I'm waiting to see a Republican leader who is not Mitch McConnell stand up and say unequivocally that the Ukraine fight is the most important thing happening in the world right now and we have to win. Lindsay basically did that this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is the question I would ask back to you is like, can you win a Republican primary right now and be unequivocal in standing up for Ukraine? I don't believe so. I think maybe. I think that's a known unknown. Because here's what I think is going to happen. I think that Trump is really going to lean in on isolationist Trump here. Mm -hmm. And and America first here, Trump hard. And so that's what makes me wonder now, you know, we're not sure if old Norma Desmond down there still has his fastball, as JBL's been pointing out. And so maybe he won't be able to corner the DeSantis's of the world on this. But a good Trump could, right? And like kind of force them to actually really pick a side, right? You know, and on the side of, oh, no, we need to pull back from Ukraine. And believe me, when I'm president again, we'll have peace in Ukraine. Believe yeah. me, we had peace yeah. in Ukraine when I was president. Yeah, we're not going to keep doing this indefinitely. And we're not going to do World War III. And if Putin, if Putin needs to get some Donbass, like, that's fine. And we're not going to go to World War III over this. We've got problems here, right? So Trump's going to do that. There'll be more pressure on DeSantis to kind of pick a side than there was on Fox and Friends, which wasn't exactly a hard-hitting interview. Maybe he can keep this going all the way through next February, but I, I'm not 100% sure. And I think that Trump's move this week to go to Ohio, you know, the site of this train crash, is just a play on all this, right? And you see this on right. Fox, you know, today. And even the normie Republicans, it was, I think it was Dana Reno, it was definitely Rove. You know, he's on one of the daytime shows, so not Tucker. And they yeah, were like, yeah, Rove. Biden made a mistake. They were criticizing Biden today on daytime Fox. He made a mistake by going to Ukraine and not Ohio during President's Day. And like, you know, this shit pisses me off, right? And we don't need to talk about how phony this all is. Like these guys, like, like Donald Trump gives a fuck about these people in Ohio. He couldn't give less of a fuck. Like we all know that's stated. But strategically, politically, the fact that Trump is doing this, has he left Florida? I and mean, this is like, he did one event in South Carolina. <laughs> it's like his second time leaving Florida in half a year. And, and he's going to this Ohio thing. And I assume that while there, that's what he's going to lean in on. Like, we need to be focusing on these people and on the border, not on Ukraine. And, you know, if that picks up steam, it becomes challenging, I think, for DeSantis to straddle it. And I think he probably ends up falling, tippling over into the Trump side of, it, of things. All right, Sarah, I have a question for you. So in his newsletter this morning, Charlie Sykes, whose newsletter you can get for free by going to thebulwark.com every morning. Uh, so Charlie says he, he gives us four categories of, of Biden critics from the Republican Party. He says a few are genuinely America first isolationists. A few are pro-Putin because they have an authoritarian kink. A lot of them are anti-Zelensky because they're pro-Trump and we have this whole Zelensky-Trump. Or Jewish. Uh, <laughs> or that. And then all of them are anti-Biden. If you, having done a bazillion focus groups, if you were going to draw that into a pie chart for me, how would you break that out? In Republican base voter types, like what what percentage are like genuine Rand Paul isolationist types, which are like really sort of pro-Putin because they like the authoritarian stuff, which are just Trumpers, they don't like Ukraine because Zelensky didn't play ball with Trump and which are just reflexively anti-Biden. Okay, so this is an interesting exercise, but the thing is, is that 
the first two, the libertarian isolationists, the pro-Putins, just very small, right? That's a very small group of people. So if you go back, somebody, somebody did this a few months ago, and it was startling when you saw it, but they aggregated the polling and they showed how the polling on support for Ukraine among Republicans oh, had, had been yeah. like just getting chopped down and down and down, right? So it's a moving target. And what happens is, is like the isolationists, the true believers, it's very similar to our Republican triangle of doom, right? But they've pumped the poison in about why aren't we focusing on our border? And actually Zelensky's a criminal. And over time, right, they get enough of this stuff that your average, maybe Trumpers, they went from being like, God, these grandmothers handing these Russian soldiers, you know, sunflower seeds. Look at that. That's so amazing to being like, we should not be sending funding there because we should really be taking care of ourselves in a way that is just sort of broad based and and it dovetails with other things, right? So like the coverage, I think America and maybe globally, attention spans, our ability to sustain interest, even in a, in a major war where we have a lot of stake, democracy has a lot of stake, right? Like there was this period of time where everybody was interested in it. And over time, like coverage waned, interest waned, and then the churn of the right-wing media. And so it's not that they're pro-Putin. They would never say that. They're just like, the right-wing media has been able to just shift them slightly. It's sort of like anti-anti-Trumpism, where you're able to say, like, well, I'm not pro-Putin, but, like, we should not be sending all of this money to Ukraine when we can't even focus on the border and we can't take care of our own people. They think that's totally reasonable because they don't have a bigger geostrategic outlook of why we would be in Ukraine. All right, so back to the question I started us with. What happens to the conservative foreign policy establishment? Like, if they look at the Ron DeSantis interview— and they see that the next Republican nominee is likely to either be Trump or DeSantis, and so is, is going to be sitting over there on something like that spot, are they going to just keep riding it out, or are they going to realize that they're functionally Scoop Jackson Democrats now? So I think that the real politique answer to this is those guys feel like they got out of the first Trump ad been looking pretty peachy. Like They feel like Trump got kind of pushed around, by the generals and stuff. They got most of what they wanted out of him. All of his worst ideas they talked him out of. He didn't actually end up pulling out of Afghanistan. You know, they did take out the Iranian guy, right? Like on balance, like this was an area where Trump got pushed around a little bit by the other folks and like his gut instincts weren't executed. Now, I think we all know that in a second Trump term, that would not be the case, right? I think they think right now, "Mm, let's play ball here with DeSantis right? Maybe we can get another situation like that where like DeSantis goes in, gets in running NatCon, but like we all kind of get these spots, you know, they put us in into the DOD and state. Maybe it's not the perfect, you know, but it's, it's better and it's still career advancing. We're not gonna be able to be Democrats anyway. Who knows what DeSantis actually says. This is an unpopular opinion, even among the never Trumpers, but I was always on the side of let Trump have his people and let Trump fuck everything up. And like, let's, Let's just fast forward to the end of this game. Like, let's let everything shake out. Like, I think that would have been better I was on balance. That. For, I know, I know you are, <laughs> but I think on balance, I think that would have been better because that didn't happen. That lets all these guys continue hanging on and thinking that actually we're going to be the strong foreign policy party eventually anyway, and that uh, who knows the woke AOCs are going to take over the Dems, and so they're just going to live in that world. And so I, I think while you are living in reality, JVL, just among kind of where the voters are shaking out, I think that that the remaining you know, kind of strong defense Republican types, with the exception of those who already bailed over Trump. 
of course, right. um, including some of those, like at the Shield of the Republic, our friends at Shield of the Republic, uh, and others. You know, I think a lot of uh, uh, them stick around. This is where I think his two-track ends up working. DeSantis's. Yeah, DeSantis's. What he says behind the closed doors at the AEI conference will be different than what he says to base voters at rallies, right? Right. They get their confidence not by what he says. They get private assurances. And this is where I think DeSantis actually is different than Trump. I think DeSantis will give private assurances to these guys at the AEI conferences that make them believe like, this guy gets it. He will be fine. He's and one of us. I, he just has to do this act for the rubes. That's exactly right. And this predates Trump, right? Where right. behind totally. those closed doors, you get a different. So this is where I think he can play both sides pretty effectively. All right. Uh, let's move on. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who knows something about divorces, has made the case over the weekend for a national divorce. She wants the red states to go their way and the blue states to go their way. If you are a Democrat moving to a red state, you ought to have to wait five years before you're allowed to cast a vote, which sounds like a really great idea, I guess. Perfectly constitutional. It makes total sense. What do you make of the national divorce stuff? Because I at once, you know, fantasy politics JVL thinks, <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> but the reality of it, like A, it's not red state versus blue state. It's urban versus rural. And every state is highly segregated in that way. But B, even if it was, red states are all basically red and blue states are all basically blue. That's not how this works. There is no amicable divorce. You can't break up, right? What you're saying then is like civil war. And that's, you know, to pretend that there's a yeah. an amicable way that we could all just go our separate ways, that doesn't work. And so it's irresponsible. Wait, you're kidding. Marjorie Taylor Greene said something irresponsible. Yeah, who's going to work at the senior citizens' homes? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. So, Sarah, your your little comment there. Oh, my God, Marjorie Taylor Greene said something irresponsible. Here's why yeah. I wanted to bring up this topic, actually, because we spent plenty of time talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene saying crazy shit. There are a lot of libs that think this. And there's even a very strongly supportive Bulwark uh, member who's probably listening who pitched me on something to this effect. And I will not uh, I will not say it, but we had a little tete-a-tete -tete back and forth over email about how I was like, this is crazy. I think that there are a lot of liberals that think this. And I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene in her tweet was representing a lot of MAGA voters who I think say that to her. I don't think this was like a sir story where she was making this up. Didn't her formulation say something like, Every single person I spoke to thinks this is true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. there, there was some, that sort of insane formulation. Right? I bet she hears this. Why can't we I just break up? I think she probably up? does too. Um, yeah. you, you hear this. I'm sure Sarah does in focus groups just maybe on the micro about states, right? Like, can't we just break up from Atlanta, the rural Georgia people? You know, like that's just a completely different place. And and I heard this when I was for the circus when I was covering the uh, Tiffany Smiley campaign in rural Washington about how different we are than Seattle and how we, you know, we should just break up. So I think that a lot of people think that. I find it fucking ridiculous, absurd, maddening. Very, it makes me very angry. And it is not impractical. Nobody who, who suggests this has thought two steps beyond how it might feel and how it might happen. Like, you can't do this, okay? I mean, for starters, obviously, we're not going to take up arms against each other. I'm not going to fight the Fresno Minutemen Fingers crossed. here for the Battle of California, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't think the Fresno Minutemen are going to fight me. Okay, and I certainly don't think that they're going to fight the Oakland Black Panthers. Okay, so I don't, I don't think that there's going to be a, a violent California breakup. This is not where you know folks are. This is all like a cosplay fantasy. And secondly, that's just as divided as we all are, and that's the cliche. Oh, we're so divided. And all. 
within everybody's family, within everybody's friend group, or like people that voted for Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Like, okay, so like this is all stupid. And our differences are all pretty minor. Like, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, like you're mad that, that the kids in second grade are going by they, them. And like, we're mad that like you don't like drag queens. Because you attempted a coup. <laughs> because you attempted a yeah, coup. I'm more mad about the coup. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, we are mad about the coup. But you know, <laughs> the coup wasn't also, you know, a straight breakup of the country. I mean, there weren't 70 million coups. Um, they were maybe okay with it casually. It's stupid. Marjorie Taylor Greene is stupid. If you find yourself agreeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene, you should take some time to like really think about things and reassess. Well, one of the reasons that she says it is because, of course, it's never going to happen. Right. Like this is where people are so safe to say these crazy things. Right. Because if they thought for a second that it was really going to happen, they wouldn't say it. I've always thought this. I, I don't quite know how to articulate it. There's this perverse thing that happens when you have an incredibly stable democracy. Right. People think it's so stable that they're happy to undermine it for their own purposes because they think we can't really have a coup even now. Right. You had a coup. You had an attempted coup, an attempt to overturn election. But like everybody's still like, yeah, it didn't work. And like it was fine. And like a couple deaths. Yeah. So it's a fundraising tactic. It's a it's a tactic to stir people up. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have certain repercussions, which is that we hate each other more, that we start talking about ourselves as not the same country, not the same people, that our divisions are so deep that somehow, you know, because of course it's like all preposterous, but like that's what it does ultimately is it speaks to people's sense of how deep our divisions are and how we should turn on each other. And Marjorie Taylor Greene's had a few bangers though lately. Um, She also, while Joe Biden was in Kiev, tweeted about how Americans hate Joe Biden. America hates Joe Biden. Uh, 46% of America hates Joe Biden. That's right. (laughs) And can I just say one thing? So I have seen some harsh critiques of Marjorie Taylor Greene for some of these ridiculous things that she has said from some of the anti-anti quarters that JBL's friend, but but not mine, Eric Erickson, did this, where they just really lay into Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, this is a crazy person, whatever. How different is she from Donald Trump? How different is Marjorie Taylor Greene and what she's saying from what Donald Trump has said? She's not different. What is it that led people that they're happy to call out Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of stomp on her for these things, but went along with Donald Trump? What's the big difference? The difference is, like, they use her as a proxy, right? And she is a especially useful proxy because she is tied to McCarthy. And so, you know, there's this, like, war for Kevin McCarthy's soul. I guess not soul, but his ear, right? And his power block, and that's part of it. Can I take the other side of this, though, for a second? The pro-divorce side? No, not the pro-divorce side. But Dying for this. I am not convinced that Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't mean it. But she can mean it. She just, she knows it's not going to happen. Okay. So like, you know, somebody like Josh Hawley does this, like, of course he doesn't mean it. And he's just posturing. There are plenty of people who do that. got to be able to go to Whole Foods. Where's he going to get, <laughs> like, you know, where's he going to shop? Where's he going to get a skinny jeans? there's a national divorce. <laughs> but th- there are people, and I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them, who mean it wholeheartedly and who really would like one. They would like a, a national divorce or a civil war. She had that line, remember, about, you know, if she had been organizing that attempted coup, they would have won because they would have had guns. Tim, you said the Fresno Minutemen don't want to come into Oakland to fight you. I think that's an open question. I think our experience of the last six years have shown that there are there are guys out there in Idaho and, you know, Virginia who are, you know, spend their time and weekends training and cosplaying. And maybe it's just cosplay, but maybe not. 
we had these running street battles in Portland, right? Where people from the rural parts of, of Oregon were rolling into the city to go wailing on Antifa's. And what I'm saying is, do I think that 10% of the country would go to war over this? No. Do I think like half a percent might? Maybe. And that's all you need, right? You know, the Bolsheviks overturned the old regime with like 30,000 soldiers. You don't actually need to have 30% of a country taking up arms in order to cause tremendous problems, which is why all of this talk is so deeply irresponsible. This is the part I do agree with. There is a small contingent of people that are taking this seriously. And then there's another contingent that wouldn't actually take up arms because they're, you know, pussy internet warriors, but like, but who are serious about it, right? Like if they could just press a button, they'd be like, yeah, sure. I'll, right. I'll Curtis Yarvin would do it if he didn't have to like, you know, get hit. Yeah, if you just magically make it happen. I'm going to get serious for a second. I was reading about the 1962 Ole Miss, James Meredith situation on the football team. You know, the football team was had to play through that season, and, and the National Guard gets called in to Ole Miss to desegregate the school. Man, I guess, you know, I'd seen the video of Meredith, right? But I, I'd forgotten or wasn't really aware that, like, there were multiple deaths in Oxford, like the, the National Guard was on campus for weeks at a time, right? Like, so there was real fear. And in this article I was reading, one of the interviews was with a black guy who lived on the outskirts of Oxford, you know, who was like, when people are coming in and out of town, there's just this one highway that goes in into Oxford, kind of two-lane highway. You know, people were singing Dixie and waving the Confederate flag and, like, saying the N-word and, like, throwing shit at his house. And, like, if there was a place that was ripe for a national divorce, it was Mississippi in 1962, right? Like, there was an actual bright line, mostly between black and white, but a small percentage of the white population that was there that was, you know, supportive of desegregation plus the black population. Like that, if you go back and read about 62 in Mississippi, that is divorce talk. This, you know, like some dudes in Idaho with the fucking Punisher sticker on the back of their truck talking about how they're mad about woke mind virus. That's bullshit. We fought civil wars over stupid shit before. In history, people have fought wars over stupid shit before, right? But I'm just, like the contrast between how stupid this is and how like small the divisions are by comparison, like that is kind of what leads me to believe that like yeah, it's this performative bullshit. It's just silly. Also, the logistics. I mean, the logistics are really tough. Are we going to have different money? I don't think so. Where are the divisions? Where Where are the lines? Where are we going? Yeah, who gets Austin? Yeah. Anyway, all I'm <laughs> saying right. is there are enough people who I think do take this seriously that talking about it like this from a position of Margaret Taylor Green, who is not an internet rando. She is an important leadership figure within the majority in the House of Representatives. It's dangerous and irresponsible. Before we leave MTG, did you see her other tweet about how if she were a black person, she'd be proud when she saw Confederate monuments? No, I didn't. So when I said she had some bangers, I didn't even know about that one. Yeah, That's I forget great. her rationale. But it was it was her putting herself in the in the minds of the African American community and just oh, you know, so empathetic, speculating that uh, seeing Confederate monuments would make her proud. And so, shouldn't they be so proud? All right, last thing, Don Lemon. Don Lemon, CNN is freaking out. They're going to punish him or something. Because Don Lamont said that terrible thing about Nikki Hill. Not even, he said that terrible thing about a Republican. And CNN is really upset. I mean, to be fair, he said it about women. He said it about women. So are you, you're offended? You're, you're in your prime, according to Don Lamont. You have to be <laughs> feeling pretty good. I get a few more years. I get a few more years. Uh, but Dave, hold on. JVL and I, on the Secret Pod, we talked about this. And I said, listen, I wanted to call it then 
that Don Lemon was going to get in more trouble at CNN for his women not in their prime comments than any of the Fox News people who flat out lied to their audiences about the election being stolen and have been caught red-handed saying, of course, this is lunacy. Nothing is happening to them, as best I can tell. No change, no apology, no acknowledgement of it. And predictable, Don Lemon in some real hot water. Is he taking some time? He's not on right now. What's happening? Uh, he's back tomorrow. Oh, he's back tomorrow. Okay. There's maybe a punishment. I don't, he doesn't really seem like he's enjoying his new show with his co-hosts. Which may, <laughs> there may be some sexism related to that. I don't know, but uh, it doesn't. It's not killing it on the chemistry standpoint. You know, it's nothing like the next level podcast. Not like as this far show. As, uh, as far as the triad is concerned. Um, so maybe his punishment is having to go back on the show. I don't know. He has to go to a training. I don't know exactly what the training is. It's like. Don, <laughs> you know, women in their 50s are capable of many things. <laughs> they can run for president. They can be mothers. They can be on television. I, I don't know what he's going to learn at this training, but, you know, Hold I don't on, know. Hold on, Sam. I want to know something. When you heard Don's comments, were you like, yeah, that sounds right? Because this to me, Don Lemon's comments sounded to me like, easily something coming out of your mouth me like absolutely i was like i was just watching i'm a father i'm a girl dad now i don't think so maybe 20 years ago me 15 years ago me uh-huh. gay men we do have a little bit of a, a little bit of a blind spot, spot on the misogyny maybe. we do you know uh, <laughs> a little bit sometimes it's a little bit challenging to wrap our heads around we don't have a lot of women in our lives you know um and so sometimes there's a little bit of a blind spot, I think. that I think that's a fair criticism of gay men. GPL didn't know Don Lemon was gay. This is also a thing we had to cover on The Secret Pod because I was, I was explaining to him that sometimes gay men have this blind spot and JVL's like, Don Lemon's gay? Yeah, once I heard that, it was like, oh, this all makes sense now. Yeah, Don's gay, yeah. So, I mean, so you can see Don, like, the wheels are turning. He's like, I just, I'm, I'm talking about, like, when the childbearing age, and you're like, can women childbear? <laughs> what are the words there? Like, can I vulva? Like, I don't, you know, gay men, we just start to, like, we start to panic. You know, we're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> talking about girl parts now. Anyway. <laughs> I love how he just kept being like, Google it. They say it on Google the call. It. Google. <laughs> Google it. That's what I have to do. Anyway, uh, so but Don is going to have to do a training. But he did apologize. Wasn't good. Whatever. He did apologize. And to JVL's point, it is not as if the woke left came for him for like, you know, the fact that he said something inappropriate about some left wing, right? Like it was a Nikki Haley critique. Now, you did the Fox comparison, which is the obvious comparison about the fact that none of these guys are held accountable for the Dominion lawsuit. But what about a more apt one? What about any time that Eric Bowling has made fun of Kamala Harris, right? Or right. Greg Gutfeld has made fun of Kamala Harris or said something. Said, like, could you imagine one of them going on TV and apologizing to Kamala Harris? Never. Right. Never. That would be a much bigger gaffe on Fox than saying something misogynistic, which probably helps them, right? And so that is what pissed me off. The other thing that pissed me off about this really to kind of women empowerment, because she doesn't get enough credit in this whole deal, just changing the subject a little bit over back over to Fox. Jackie Heinrich, the woman who sent the tweet yeah. that was like, no, Donald Trump, you are wrong about Dominion. Like, there's no proof. Whatever, I don't remember what the exact tweet said. That sparked the internal text that got revealed where Tucker and Hannity... These two powerful men are like plotting behind the scenes to get her fired for doing the job, for being the one person there doing a fucking job of journalisming. No matter all of the fuck ups that CNN has had, all of the bias, you know, anything on any of these shows that people don't like, there's just no comparison to that. Like it is impossible to conceive of 
Anderson Cooper like trying to fire someone for saying something nice about Ron DeSantis. I, I, the whole thing is just so like really maddening. Sarah? I agree with all of that. That's, yeah. Good. Uh, Good I show. I said, Long I, show. I said, I said what I said. Uh, <laughs> Have you watched uh, Don Lamont on uh, CNN this morning? I've watched it a few times. You know, I was doing Don's show mm. semi-regularly there at the end or there, you know, the so night. Not that sexist. Huh? He's having a lesbian on. Not that sexist, you know? Yeah, I mean, what he said is like really bad, but it's also sort of funny because it is so... It's such a terrible thing to say. Like, and watching him in real time, like, work that out in his head. And also, my favorite movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, The Prime of Machine Brody. JVL makes fun of me because he says all my favorite movies are from. It's like, guys, go watch The Prime of Machine Brody. It's early Maggie Smith. It's in Technicolor. (laughs) It's set in Edinburgh in the 30s. I will not (laughs) be watching that. Okay. Well, she's always talking about how she's in her prime. And I bet she's in her... 30s. (laughs) I think giving us the 40s, you know, I think that's a little, it's actually, you know, it's kind of progressive for (laughs) for old Don. Women are in their prime always. Yes. Obviously. We all agree with this. Mm -hmm. Obviously. All right. Good show. Long show. Guys, thanks for being here. Everybody out there, hit the like button. Hit subscribe. Give us five stars. Thursday Night Bulwark. Join Bulwark Plus oh, yeah. this week. I'm on Thursday Night Bulwark. I'm taking over the host chair from JVL. I've got Amanda. I've got Joe Perticone. We're going to have a little kids hour. We're, we're all young and in our prime. And uh, we're going to take questions from the Bulwark Plus members, do a Q&A. We're also having my friend Barbara Comstock, former Republican congresswoman. She's going to be oh, on at the top. Barbara. We're gonna, Love Barbara. Yeah, we're going to just do a little, little gossip session with her. Joe's over there in the house doing the reporting. Barbara, it's all her old colleagues. We're just going to do a little gossip session about the house. It'll be good. Join Bulwark Plus. Come hang with us Thursday night. All right. Bye. Peace. Bye.